All right, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians, making ground, covering ground. We're already in chapter 1. We're going to walk through the end of the chapter, starting in verse 18. Actually, we'll start in verse 17 for a good running start. We finished with verse 17 last week, um, but we'll start with verse 17 because we didn't really talk about the second half of that verse. So we'll start with 17, and then I will read through to the end of the chapter, verse uh, 31. You can follow along with me in your own Bibles if you'd like, or just feel free to listen to the Word of God. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world, this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus, let us by your spirit be able to glory in the Lord. Um, Let us boast in nothing less no other thing, but, but Lord, let us boast in Christ. Uh, I pray that you would fill our hearts and our minds um, with this righteous pride in the cross, that we would glory in the cross of Christ, that we would be delighted to speak the truths of the gospel, even if it's foolishness to men, that we would be thrilled beyond measure uh, to be made one with Christ, who is the wisdom of God, who is our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God, I pray that you would protect and preserve us from the errors of avoiding the cross or making small the cross, making light of things that you don't take lightly. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your church. I pray that you would bless your church with understanding of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, back to get a running start, right? Verse 17, even though we ended with this last week. Take a look at it once more. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ 
should be made of no effect. We talked about baptism a little bit last week, so I won't go into that any further today, except to say that uh, if you have not been baptized, you need to do that. You are commanded in Scripture to be baptized. I know places where there's water. I'm not afraid of the cold. Let's go. Let's do this. Okay? If you if you need more of the theology backing that up, then uh, <laughs> yeah, Julie raises her hand because she's a winter middle of vast lake baptism. With a, yeah, we did that. Yeah, I'll go trump in the mud the whole way out until we find water deep enough to do it. We will, yeah. Um, Hailstorms, done that. That was fun. That was great. Um, yeah, if you want more of the theology of baptisms as it relates to Paul's argument here, just go back, uh, listen to the last 10 minutes or so of last week's sermon. Uh, it's online. But the second half of verse 17 introduces the, the rest of the chapter, the next section. And it's not really about baptism. Um, it's about the gospel and how the gospel is preached. Paul says that he was sent to preach the gospel in a particular way, not with wisdom of words. And then he indicates that if he had preached the gospel with wisdom of words, and he talks about this worldly wisdom, then the cross itself would be made of no effect. Now, already we find ourselves in a place where we need a little bit of explanation here, because at first glance, it might seem like Paul is saying, I didn't present the gospel intelligently, and if I had, the gospel wouldn't work. If that's what you heard, you heard wrong. Okay, in the book of Acts, you read some of Paul's sermons. Uh, I think he uses words pretty good. Uh, you can read the book of Romans and then be completely certain beyond the shadow of a doubt that Paul was more than able to present the gospel with the very best words and in a, in a superhuman command of, with a superhuman command of wisdom. It's almost as if a divine spirit were inspiring his words when he wrote it, something like that. Okay, Paul, Paul can be intelligent. It's not, that's not what he's talking about. When Paul says, I was not called to preach with wisdom of words, he's not saying, I sounded dumb and I like it that way. Every now and then you'll have people take this verse and others like it and this, this passage and come, they'll come to the conclusion that Christianity is meant to somehow be anti-intellectual. Don't study theology, theology, those big thick books, that's just wisdom of words. When you try and bring the gospel into academia, the cross is made of no effect. That is absolutely not what Paul is saying here. That's not why this passage is written. It is true that the cross will be seen as foolishness. That is very clear in this passage. But it is only foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness when your wisdom is broken. <laughs> and Paul makes it very clear that the gospel and the cross of Christ are things of divine wisdom, of the highest wisdom. So what does he mean about not preaching the gospel with wisdom of words? Well, to get this understanding, I need to introduce you to some people called the sophists. So 500 years or so before Paul, 500 plus, uh, Greek society was infiltrated with these people that really loved to sound like they were right. Um, they really loved to win an argument. These were contemporaries and predecessors of Socrates and Plato. These were the guys they were always getting into arguments with. Um, no, Socrates and Plato really couldn't stand the sophists. The sophists were basically professional, wise men, not the magi type, um, but they were. it was their profession to be wise or to, to pretend to be wise. They were orators, speakers. They would usually try to amass large followings and even start very expensive schools so that they could teach their students how to sound wise. So wisdom for them was equated with Convincing words, winning an argument. Um, now, their, their actual opinions 
didn't matter. A sophist could take both sides of an argument. The point was winning. And so they're different than philosophers um, in ancient Greece in that sophists were not trying to promote a way of life or find truth or, or promote any particular worldview. They were trying to make a quick buck and look nice doing it. Uh, the lessons they taught were not life lessons, but rather how to look right and sound right. These are the personalities with personality cults around them. Sophists made a lot of money by training people how to win arguments. And again, they didn't have one unifying belief or anything they were trying to convince people of necessarily, but they wanted to sound right. And if you paid them the right fee, you can sound right too. Being able to win an argument was very important in the ancient world, not just the Greek culture. But you can see why Paul would want to distance himself from these preachers for hire. He did not argue the way they did, just to make a point or just to make a dollar. And unlike the sophists, Paul did have a message that he deeply cared about. Now, there's more to the history of the sophists than you might, more than you probably want to know. Um, but by the first century, they had uh, already had their heyday. They'd become mostly a thing of the past. This is kind of overly simplistic, but one way of understanding this is that the sophists on one side and the philosophers like Socrates, Plato, then Aristotle on the other side, Socrates was killed, but ultimately the Greek culture, the philosophers won out. And, the, and by, you know, centuries later, they revered Socrates, who they killed. But by the time of Paul, there was a, there, uh, even though the sophists had kind of gone underground in larger Greek culture, in Corinth, uh, we have many ancient sources showing that there was a sophist renaissance in Corinth in the first century. And this makes sense, of course, knowing what we know about Corinth, right? They didn't have morals, <laughs> and they had more than enough conviction in their own superiority to go around. They liked being the best. They didn't have strong philosophical convictions. They didn't care about virtue or the best way to live. They just knew that they were better than everyone else. So when you have that kind of worldview, you inevitably judge things based on deceptive appearances because appearances are as deep as your values go. So when Paul says, I didn't preach the gospel according to wisdom, which he then identifies later as worldly wisdom, the word for wisdom there is Sophia, making the connection in the minds of the Corinthians very clear. Paul did not present the gospel like a sophist. It seems that Paul was very aware of people like this when he came to Corinth. It's only in Corinth where Paul makes it a point of paying for his own uh, needs. He'll make the point later that it's good and right for someone who spends their life sharing the gospel to make their living through the gospel by the same means. But in Corinth, Paul makes an exception because he didn't want to look like those people who were just preachers for profit. So he refused any paychecks. He refused to take collections from Corinth. He says he robbed other churches. I mean, he'd go to other churches and take up a collection being like, I got to minister to these Corinthians. But if I ask them for money, I'm just going to look like the sophist and they're going to be like, yeah, we'll pay you. Argue for us. Speak. Give a nice speech. And he says, I can't do that. I can't look like the wise of this world. The gospel is not there so people can make money. The gospel is not there to make you look smart. So in verse 17, Paul is saying, if I came preaching the gospel like them, with that kind of wisdom, like the sophists, then the gospel would be no more than a random topic for your debate club. It would be a hypothetical, rhetorical, maybe an interesting bit of trivia, but not an actual world-changing, heaven-shaking, divine plan to save souls from a very real sin, death, and hell. They, would have, they wouldn't have heard it like that. They would have been like, oh, interesting topic. You could have argued that better. So Paul didn't talk like professionals. Again, this is not to say he was stupid or intentionally you know, dumbed down the gospel. He just wasn't going to present the gospel in a showy way 
that made it look like he was trying to convince you of something for the sake of convincing you of something. He wasn't going to present the gospel the way the sophists might, uh, who didn't care about the function of a message, only the form of the message. Paul makes this very clear in 2 Corinthians. Okay, his next his next letter to this same church, the same congregation, in 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen, he says, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Meaning, I'm not following the rules of formal speech, but I know what I'm talking about. And then he continues and he says, indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So there's a certain way of speaking and a certain way of writing that is not there to make a point clear. There's a certain way of speaking that, that's only there to make sure you know the communicator is smarter than you. That's not helpful. It's impressive. And people might walk away being like, that was a really smart guy. Paul's like, that's not what I'm interested in. I don't need to convince you of my intelligence or my skills as a speaker. I need to convince you of Christ and him crucified. So Paul doesn't preach the gospel the way the sophist did. He does instead by making things plain, simple. And because of this, because he didn't give speeches the way the pros gave speeches, they weren't as entertaining, they weren't as impressive. The messenger, Paul, sounded foolish to them. And that's okay with Paul. Because the selfish, to the selfish, carnal, worldly people that he was preaching to, the message sounded foolish too. So verse 18 Verse 18 and 19, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, Paul makes a two-part argument in First and Second Corinthians. Uh, part one, the messenger of the gospel is bound to appear foolish to those in the world because, part two, the message of the gospel will appear foolishness to the wisdom of the world. The message of the cross is foolishness, again, if your wisdom is broken. <laughs> the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. Again, we need to be sure we know what this is not saying. This is not saying that the message of the cross is the definition of, of foolishness. That's not true. That's not how Paul is, is talking. This should be repeating. Repeated, excuse me. Paul is not saying, isn't this silly? Isn't this just nonsense that God would do this? It's crazy, isn't it? But you know, I'm kind of a crazy guy anyway, so I like that. That is not what Paul is preaching. As we'll see, the cross in all of its depth of paradox is the actual wisdom of God. What Paul is saying is that the message of the cross is foolishness, particularly to those whose wisdom is as depraved as the rest of them. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, that is, to the lost, who are continuing in their depravity. Now, when Paul says the message of the cross, we understand that to be the, the fullness of the gospel, the, the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of the perfect Son of God, the Lamb of God, Jesus of Nazareth. We pack all of that into this one phrase, and we know from later in this letter, chapter 15, that Paul included all of it here too. But what comes to our theologically trained minds when we hear the cross is totally different than what comes to the mind of someone who had actually seen a crucifixion, which would describe the majority of Paul's audience. Mentioning the cross would be extremely triggering for Paul's readers. 
They're not thinking of a cross as something beautiful or wise. They're certainly not looking at the cross like a piece of jewelry or a sanctuary decoration. They're looking at the cross like you might look at a dirty hypodermic needle in a gutter. Okay, there's no wisdom there. There's nothing of value. Get away from it. Tell your kids not to touch it. That's the cross. But Paul unapologetically preaches the offensive message of crucifixion because he had come to know it as the power of God. And he had come to accept that the way this message was typically rejected in sophisticated cultures, well, that was all part of a long plan, even according to prophecy. The verse he quotes here in verse 18 is from Isaiah 29, verse 14, and it immediately follows a verse that Jesus himself applied to the Jewish people um, that, had, that had elevated a, a false kind of wisdom above the wisdom of God. Um, when Jesus uh, preaches to the Jews out of Isaiah 29, he says, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. That's Isaiah 29, 13. That kind of legalism in the Jewish world of Jesus was just one small step removed from the sophistication of the Greek world in Corinth. And this kind of comparison is one that Paul draws on in, in verse 22 when he says, for the Jews request a sign and the Greek seeks wisdom, and that's not my game, either one. <laughs> but for now, in verse 20, he says, where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And sorry, I, I kind of skipped verse 19 where he, he quotes Isaiah. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. He says, this has always been God's plan for the people who think they have it all together to be surprised by the gospel that they don't. When Paul and the other apostles and the first generations of the, of the baby church said that the message of the cross was central to life, that it was their way of life, that the cross, rather than an emblem of suffering and shame, was the power of God and the goodness of God and even the beauty of God. Yeah, they seemed crazy to a lot of other people. They seemed like fools. This was not the wisdom of the world. It was the exact opposite of the wisdom of the world. That's not because wisdom is wrong, and it's not because the gospel is foolish. It's because what passes for wisdom in this world has to be called by God what it is. It's foolishness with a pretty face. Because the so-called wise, those with the wisdom of the world, would say things like, God can't have a son. That's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. God was so powerful, then how could he suffer? That's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. The worldly wise would say then and would say now that the crucifixion, well, it's, it's ridiculous at best, and it's the pinnacle of all human and divine cruelty and delusion at worst. And Paul says, that's my cross. The cross shows that kind of wisdom, your kind of wisdom, to be the foolishness that it is. When he says, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the, the disputer, the debater of this age? He's saying, look, look among you, look around, look at your church. Find the person who got here because of their good sense. Find the person in, in church who is here as the wise, who got saved because they were more wise than their unsaved neighbor. How about the scribes? Those are the scholars, the people that know the word. Who got here because of their superior theological intelligence or education? Did someone pass the entrance exam for heaven with a really good essay? No. 
Is that how this works? How about, how about the disputers of this age? That's the sophists, the arguers, the people that just like to pick a fight. doesn't matter which side. They debate for the sake of the argument. Is that the way you made it into the family of God? By picking a side at random and then just coming up with good arguments to smash your opponents? Clearly, no. In verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He says no one thought their way to the gospel. No one just got down with, you know, paper and pen in their calculator and figured out how to get to heaven. And again, this is according to the wisdom of God. It's not foolishness for foolishness sake. It's God's wisdom revealing itself in a way that shows man's fallen attempts at wisdom, his poor excuse for wisdom to be completely insufficient and foolish by comparison. It is through the wisdom of God that the world, through wisdom, did not know God. It's because God is wise that he came up with a plan that you can't just get from a class. You have to get by the very Spirit of God. Because God is wise, he prevented salvation from being attained merely through wisdom. Because of the intelligence of God, he determined that salvation could not be something that you could think your way to. Now, this was something the early church had to deal with, but even though they dealt with it rather effectively, subsequent generations of believers have been breaking and reinventing this awful wheel ever since. Uh, this has to do with the nature of the fall of man. We try bad things, and we keep doing it until we die. Uh, see, there was those, those pretty uh, early on in the church, these uh, early heretics that right away wanted to say, well, the fall of man and the whole Garden of Eden thing, um, that, was, that was partial. They were saying, Adam's sin in the garden, mankind, they were, it was fallen physically, that's why we get sick and die, but not intellectually. Certainly, we can think ourselves, the pure human mind can certainly attain to the heavenly things. That They would say that essentially man is a two-story creature that has a higher intellectual self and a lower physical self, that the moral evils of human history are examples of people succumbing to the physical or brutal desires. And their solution then, according to this faulty worldview, would be, just think yourself into a higher plane of existence. This is a tired old heresy that has been patched and repatched and reinflated and patched. And it's been dressed up in many forms, but it's still the same lie. Even in the church, we sometimes fall into this trap where we think that if we knew the right things, then we would do the right things. And you think that until you know the right things and don't do them. You know, we think that if we knew the right things, we'd do the right things, and then, of course, we would be good. One writer I really appreciate coined the phrase brains on a stick to describe this faulty view of humanity. You're just a thinking thing. That's it. You're just a brain on a stick. It doesn't matter. And it's like, we're not. We're more than that. We are, we are more than that. If, if we're only thinking things, then if we think right things, we'll be perfect, or at least pretty good, passable. Now, the Bible teaches that we are fallen creatures not only in our physical bodies, but in our minds and our souls as well. We can't think our way to holiness. And that's what Paul is getting to with these Greeks. He says that God determined in his wisdom, which is better than yours, to allow heaven to be opened not by human wisdom, but by human faith in a divine message. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. This kind of faith in a God who dies for you, 
was a hard pill to swallow for both Jews and Greeks, as Paul explains. He says, for Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Jews and the Greeks inhabited two different intellectual planets, but they were orbiting the same sun. The Greeks, as we've said, were all about the logic and the argument and sounding really good, what they called wisdom. The Jews, for the most part, wanted a miraculous, supernatural sign, specifically the sign of a conquering military messiah. That would be the the good sign. Even during Christ's lifetime, we read of Jews asking Jesus to prove his divine heritage by way of a miracle, as if the miracles he already did weren't enough. His response to them, of course, in Matthew 12, 39, he says, uh, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he does not mention resurrection. He says, you're looking for a sign, I'm going to give you death instead. You're looking for wisdom, I'll give you crucifixion. Paul and Jesus do this really non-seeker-friendly thing that we just can't understand, and it's a hard example to follow, where they're like, I don't have what you're looking for. (laughs) What are you looking for? Don't have that. I don't have that. I don't have what you're looking for. Instead, instead, I have this message that says, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Take it or leave it. And the Greeks were looking for an argument that sounds good and looks good on paper. The Jews were looking for the same thing in their own way. They wanted the evidence of a sign from heaven. Both were guilty of idolatry, reducing God to either a divine philosophy lesson or a divine show-off. The cross shows that God is neither and more than both. The message of the cross shows us that God is doing something beyond our reasoning, beyond our expectations, certainly beyond our shallow desire for spectacle. The cross instead shows that God is love. Rather than a magician doing a trick or a professor giving a lecture, the death of Christ is, according to Romans 5.8, the demonstration of God's love towards sinners. That's the message Paul wants to preach. Paul knows that all of this is, is, again, not what they're looking for. He knows this is offensive, and he preaches the cross anyway. He says, we preach Christ, and Christ crucified. They're looking for that. They're looking for that. I'm offering neither. I'm giving them Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. The word stumbling block, uh, it could be translated an offense. Um, It doesn't really translate into English super well, but the idea is that the cross was, for the religious Jew, a moral, spiritual, and theological atrocity. It's something they couldn't get over. Picture a rock in the path. They just can't get over it. it. It is still to the Jewish people. God can't be cursed. And Jesus of Nazareth was definitely cursed in crucifixion. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ himself told the Jews that he would be a stumbling block for their religious sensibilities. And he called himself the cornerstone that the builders rejected. We sang about that today a little bit. Um, Peter uh, correlates this to the, the rock of offense. He says that the stumbling block is the cornerstone, which Uh, That's in 1 Peter 2, 7, which would have been interesting for Peter, just a side note, would have been interesting for Peter since Jesus named him the rock and would have also known, am I a cornerstone or a stumbling block? And to who and when? (laughs) 
The idea of a suffering Messiah was next to blasphemous for the Jew. The idea that the suffering Messiah was God's son and God himself was blasphemy with a capital B. And Paul preached it anyway. For the Jews, the cross was an offense. For the Greeks, it was foolishness. It didn't have the traditional rhetorical value of their other good arguments. It wasn't, it wasn't fun to talk about. Follow the God who allows himself to be mocked and tortured and killed. I don't really want to be on that team. That's weakness. It's easy to mock that kind of idea. There's a very ancient piece of graffiti from the first century, and it's of a, of a man with a, the head of a donkey on a cross, and then a man kneeling before it, worshiping. And the inscription is, Aleximenos worships his God. And it was a joke. It was foolishness. Someone's mocking this new cult of Christians. Someone preaching crucifixion as strength, as wisdom, they would be laughed off the stage, and Paul preached it anyway. And the reason for this is given in the next little passage. It is that the sovereign God has determined to use this apparent foolishness to put down, put to shame, undo, and ultimately bring to nothing all the false wisdom and worldly wisdom that would put itself before God. Verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. All this is done so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, verse 26 through 28 is, is funny. Um, <laughs> you got to love Paul's argument here. His sense of humor rarely shows through his letters, but it's here and it stings. Uh, a modern paraphrase of Paul's idea here would go something like this. God chooses foolish things. You want proof? He chose you. That's what Paul is saying here. He says in verse 26, he says, look around, look at yourselves, you know you. There's not many wise, are there, according to the flesh, again, that's important to note. There's not many mighty, there's not many noble that have been called. If the Corinthian congregation were to look around, they wouldn't find many heads of state. They wouldn't find successful thinkers, scholars, well-bred, upper-class people. This is, has really been true of the church throughout its existence. Jesus preached good tidings to the poor. His message is offensive foolishness, not only to the Jews and to the Greeks, but to the rich. There are notable exceptions, of course, but they are notable because they are exceptions. When Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, he really meant to highlight the impossibility of the rich finding the kingdom. But then he says all things are possible with God, giving place for the notable exceptions. Paul says not many wise not many mighty, not many noble. He doesn't say there's none, but there's not many. And again, he says there are not many wise according to the flesh. He's talking about a worldly wisdom that is defeated by the gospel, the sophistry that passed as wisdom. That was really just selfishness. It was really just arrogance. James says that the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, and willing to yield. So you could easily say that the wisdom according to the flesh was defiled, divisive, and stubborn. But that's what passes for wisdom. And that's actually what they were calling wise, the people who could win an argument. 
and further divide the church in Corinth, stubbornly, with no regard to pure doctrine. And those were the celebrities, the debaters of this age. While the Corinthians admired this sort of thing to their shame, they were not themselves the celebrities, nor were they mighty, nor were they noble. But God chose them. And verse 27 is well worth repeating, and it's worth memorizing, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. This upside-down nature of God's choices is seen throughout history, making his chief creation out of dirt, choosing Abraham, choosing Israel, that peculiar people, choosing to become man, choosing crucifixion. These are God's choices. And he has made these choices to prevent anyone from saying, I did it. I figured it out. It was my good sense and my good behavior or my good strength in this area or that that got me here. The reason for God's sovereign preferences for the weak things of the world is seen in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. This entire passage about God's preference for the weak and Paul's emphasis on the cross, which is the epitome of weakness from one point of view, it's sort of a commentary on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which you probably know. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace is for the small, the weak, the powerless. Why does Paul make the cross so central to his message? Because it's impossible to cling to the cross and still be able to think you're the hero of the story. It's impossible to come and say, I glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. I live in the shadow of the cross. I proclaim Christ and him crucified. In fact, I don't even proclaim him. I am on the cross. I died with Christ on the cross. I was crucified with him. These are the things Paul says in Galatians. You can't do all that and still brag about your own good sense. If you have come to the cross for, uh, if you have come to the cross for your hope, you must have hope in nothing else. In verse 30, it says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. This quotation is a paraphrase of a, a piece of a longer passage in Jeremiah. I'm sure you know in Jeremiah 9, 23. It says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. You can't think your way to heaven, but you can have the very wisdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You can't work your way to heaven, but it says here that Christ Jesus has become our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. For these reasons, we can glory in Christ and say with the song, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast. I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask for your power and your Holy Spirit to enable us to boast in nothing but Christ and him crucified, to proclaim 
nothing but Christ and him crucified. We are determined to know nothing short of the gospel. Jesus, we worship you. We praise you. We thank you for the wisdom and the power and the strength of God that, it is, that is in the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried according to the scriptures, that he rose again according to the scriptures. We thank you that these are not just truths, but these are our truths. We were buried with you in baptism. We will rise with you in salvation. Thank you, Jesus, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. We glory in nothing but you. And in your presence, we hold on to nothing but the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent. Go make disciples.